Blog Talk Radio.
McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I welcome you to this anniversary edition of this show. As you know, last year around this time, we interviewed Julian Watner, who is the music director of the Grammy Award-winning Washington Chords. This morning, Mr. Watner joins us again to commemorate the first anniversary of the show. Good morning, Julian. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been an exciting time down here, so yes. Thank you so much. Now, Julia, tell us about the Washington Chorus concerts that are coming up at the Kennedy Center as well as at the Music Center at Strathmore for the holiday season. Well, it's. Um, I think we've really hit the... Um, and the, the word formula is maybe negative, but the programming uh, methodology that really, really works for Christmas, and I think it bears upon you know my years of experience as a church musician, and then those years of working with the Boston Pops under the wonderful conductor Keith Lockhart and also John Williams, and then the five years of the CBC Christmas Sing-In we would do live from the Church of Saint Andrew and Saint Paul up in Montreal. Um, which you know was a big sing along that was broadcast live across um, Canada. So all those different things have uh, influenced me in creating this program that mixes the familiar with the new, um, the fast with the slow, the loud with the soft, and we have lighting and candlelight and brass and huge choir singing, and it's it's just um, you know a wonderful, wonderful feel good um, show for the holidays. Wonderful. Now, as the listeners just heard, we just were listening to your setting of O Come All Ye Faithful, uh, sung by the Washington Chorus on the latest Christmas CD, Christmas with the Washington Chorus, uh, which was recorded at the Music Center at Strathmore. Now, who did you have? Now, I, I have to correct you on. I have to correct you quickly on that because that okay. is Richard Webster's arrangement. That's the only non-Walkner arrangement on the CD. But I think it's such a great arrangement. I didn't want to mess with it and make a new one. So, the, <laughs> the, you know, it's funny. So the actually the outer verses are Richard Webster, and the middle is uh, the old David Wilcox um, with that wonderful desk camp. So. Um, and Richard Webster is a good colleague. He's the uh, director of music at Trinity Copley Square in Boston. Oh, thank you so much. At least I do. Have, right, I do have your setting of joy to the world. Yeah, which is which is a showstopper. <laughs> <laughs> One of the members of the NSO was listening. Was came up to me yesterday after our dress rehearsal and said, "Is that your arrangement of of Joy to the World?" <laughs> Boy, you just let it all out in that one. <laughs> And see, when you talk to friends, everybody can get a correction. So, yes, so Richard Webster, that was his arrangement of Oh, Come All You Faithful, but we will hear Julian Watner's setting of joy to the world as we close the show. Now, tell me, what is going to be different about uh, these concerts as opposed to the last year uh, Candlelight Christmas concerts by the Washington Chorus? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that we're figuring out and it's just like, why do people come back to Messiah year after year after year? Mm-hmm. We are not so much reinventing the wheel every year. We're building upon the successes of the past year. For instance, we get lots of feedback from our audience because you know our wonderful executive director, Diane Peterson, does all these um, surveys. And you know some of the feedback we got from last year is too many sing-alongs. We want to hear the choir more. So you know we'll take uh, something like that 
and finesse that into the programming so that um, you know we'll maybe change the, how many times the audience stands up and sings versus how many times they listen to the chorus. But in terms of like the arrangements and how it's all organized and the the fact that we're bringing we always bring in a side by side high school chorus uh, to join us and, and having those young voices there. One of the wonderful features we have this year is that we have a young. Um, member of our junior Washington course, which is our educational program that you know, of course, because you got to spend an evening um, teaching them. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, (laughs) And uh, so you probably remember, actually, I'm not going to mention a name on air, I don't think, because she's under 18, but uh, we have a wonderful uh, young person who's singing the opening of the concert, um, sort of as a uh, emulating the treble sound uh, once in Royal David City, just like King's College, mm. and it's incredible that we're able to have such talent in our, you know, junior educational program that we're able to showcase that a little bit, just like we did with Michael Palmer, who um, got to conduct last year the, the Hallelujah Chorus. So, now tell me, um, I wanted to know. I, I was thinking, in terms of instrumentation, is it going to be with full orchestra, brass, and organ? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. What we do is uh, four trumpets, three trombones, tuba, French horn, two percussion, and organ. And most of my arrangements um, are created with that ensemble because I think it's really important to create ensembles that create arrangements that can be done um, anywhere. So any church choir, you know, with that has a little bit of budget for some brass can say, oh, you know what? I heard these great, great arrangements in the Kennedy Center, and you know, I don't need a full orchestra to pull them off. So even though most of my training came from my time working with the Boston Pops and that big orchestral sound, I've managed to figure out a way to get all that big sound into the organ and then the brass punctuate. Actually, the the, the brass is so virtuoso. Um, in, in terms of what they what they put into it, that you really get the sense that you're hearing a, a huge 80-piece orchestra. Mm. Now, when you mentioned that piece about the budget, I'm sure that's something that, that hits everybody, even though this wasn't something I plan to talk about. How does the Washington Chorus manage to, you know, you have to have all these programs year after year, these major work season after season, whether it's a Mozart Requiem or a Mass or whatnot with orchestra. How do you all maintain that ability to do those kinds of works? Well, I mean, most of that has to do with a really um, close, positive, creative tension of working with my um, executive director, Diane Peterson, and with this fabulous board. Um, our board is made up of some of the, you know, the real best citizens of this of this region, and we just work really hard to make sure that we have a balanced budget. And I have to say, last year, when many of our colleague organizations were suffering greatly, we came out, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the black. And part of that is that, you know, we decided last fall to not do a big Verity program, but to do the Rachmaninoff Vespers. And that that got us off on good footing in terms of cash flow. And then we, um, these Christmas concerts are nearly sold out, and that really helps. So it's a, it's a a really careful combination of when we when we seek to do programming that is sort of um, altruistic or community-oriented, meaning something like New Music for a New Age, where we know we're not going to make money on that, but it's the right thing to do, versus 
um, you know, big chestnut pieces like the Mozart Requiem, like um, Carmina Burana, etc. But, you know, the pattern is changing, and the things that used to sell don't sell anymore. So we're really mm-hmm. making up our marketing plan concert by concert, week by week, just seeing what comes in. It helps that we have a really continuing diversity within our ensemble, both in terms of mainly in terms of age. It's kind of incredible how many young people we have. But more and more, the look of the Washington Chorus is approaching a little bit more the the look of this great city. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that uh, I must harken back to the Rachmaninoff Festival because I must say that had to be one of my most favorite uh, programs to come to because I like the idea how you all interpolated the solos and yeah. the different piano music within yeah. the piece, and then it wasn't so static. So that was that was a wonderful program. I really liked it, and it engaged the audience also. I must say, absolutely, absolutely. And it's 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 funny because we we program the Rachmaninoff Vespers in the same way that everyone's doing that right now. It's like, oh my gosh, we don't have enough money for an orchestra in this budget. Let's do that piece. But instead of just doing that piece, we sort of thought, okay, well, if you were going to listen to that at home, you might, you know, take your iTunes playlist and mix it up a little bit and have a little bit of choral music, a little bit of piano music, a little bit of song. And so it's, you know, I'd have to thank Apple and iTunes for that that new way of programming because I'm doing a lot of that. In the past, we would call it collage programming, but I'm sort of calling it iTunes Mm -hmm. playlist programming. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I never thought about it like that. You're right. That's just like pushing the shuffle button on your CD player and whatever comes out. Exactly. And and also it's like people are in the concert hall and I'm, um, you know, I look at them as if they're in my living room. And, you know, that's the way I speak from the stage. It's as if I'm just Mm -hmm. very casual. It's like, hey, thanks for coming over. Here's your glass of wine and here's what we're going to listen to now. So... Kind of cool. <laughs> Before we move on from the candlelight concerts, could you maybe give us just a rundown of the schedule of concerts in case people want to come? Absolutely. We have a Kennedy Center show on the on Saturday at four o'clock, Sunday at seven, um, and then Tuesday and Thursday. That's the twentieth and the twenty second. Those are both Kennedy Center evening programs. On Wednesday. The 21st, um, we're out at Strathmore, and that's a beautiful hall, um, and and that's that's that. So those are the five shows we're doing, and somehow I got to get back to Lincoln Center for Monday night, which is <laughs> <No, we're> <laughs> kind of gonna, kind of wild. We're going to talk, <laughs> talk about that very shortly. So if you all want to uh, purchase tickets for a candlelight Christmas with the Washington Chorus, you may visit Kennedy. Dash center dot org, or you may visit the music center at Strathmore at Strathmore dot org. And I want to go to this. He just kind of segued into that. Now I'm going to go right in. Lincoln Center, the Trinity Choir. You had mentioned the word about balance, and we've kind of talked about this before. How in the world do you balance your time between Washington with the Washington Chorus, your time in Trinity with the choir here, there, and everywhere? How do you do it? Well, you know, part of it, I keep saying this, part of the the the, the way it works is that I have, um, in Washington, it's very clear what my job is. I'm the music director, and that means I, you know, I'm, I oversee all things artistic, and I have great um, support staff specifically for music, and all the rest of the operation runs like clockwork from an administrative angle with Diane Peterson, and I don't have to worry about that. It just works. So 
for me, it's just I come down to Washington and do what I do, which is be be a musician. Now, at Trinity, it's a little bit different because there I wear the simultaneous hats of artistic director, music director, and executive director. So there, the bulk of the work is administrative, actually. But the music making there is at such a high level that that's the thing that runs very smoothly. And I know that the choir is always going to come through with almost anything we throw at them. The orchestra is world-class, and the weekly Bach they've been doing has just been fantastic. So it's um, that sort of 10 hours of beautiful music making um, is so enriching that it's it empowers me. So I'll do a Bach at one at Monday at 1 o'clock, and by 3 o'clock I'm on the Acela down to Washington, and I'm still on the high from doing the, the, the Bach cantata, and it, it all kind of works works together. <laughs> well, you know I had a chance to experience that when we had our little road trip, and for the listeners, um, I embarked on a project called the Watner Project where I had the opportunity to, to follow the maestro. And so uh, Julian had just finished conducting the concert with Elena Rohr, and then he had to get back to New York to conduct Lock at one, only to have to come back to conduct uh, rehearsals for the Washington Chorus. At that time, they were preparing for some some other concerts. So I have seen it at work firsthand. And you, I must say you do a great job, Ben, doing all those things. And you, do, you, if I remember, you actually witnessed one of our tactical meetings of Music and the Arts administrative staff. <laughs> I did. I did indeed. Now, you had talked about Trinity, and I want to make sure that I get this correctly. I had the opportunity to interview um, Dr. Owen Burdick, your predecessor, yes. um, a week ago, and he had mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, the fact that Messiah received world premiere at Trinity. Is that correct? Um, it's you know it's disputable, but um, it's it's pretty sure that you know in the like 1770s, um, Messiah was performed in, in its in entirety at Trinity. But it's also thought that, you know, a month before at the local tavern, it was also performed. And mm. Boston also tries to claim its, you know, uh, it as its own. So it's a little bit nebulous, but let's say for sure that, you know, Trinity uh, Church was responsible for some of the first performances of this great oratorio down uh, in the New World. Oh wow! Talk and you know, oh, what's what, what's great about Owen is um, all right. no, no, we just we met for the first time two weeks ago, and um, it's he's a great guy, and I'm looking forward to actually seeing his Messiah on Sunday. So I'm I'm looking forward forward to that. He's I think he's going to be a very good colleague here in Washington. That's awesome, and it's actually for a, a good cause. Uh, as most people, the listeners may have recalled from that conversation, the organ at the Church of the Ascension in St. Agnes was damaged uh, when uh, ceiling residue fell into the liturgical organ, which is a very wonderful instrument there, but at any rate, the organ was damaged. So this performance of Messiah at the Church of the Ascension to St. Agnes is also a benefit uh, concert for the organ. So if you're in the Washington um Area, come join us because Julie and I are attending that as well. So that'd be great. But let's talk about Trinity's, uh, the Trinity Choir's performance of Messiah at Lincoln Center. How did that decision become uh, into being to do that work in that great hall? Well, the one of the things that 
when when I was interviewed and brought into Trinity, the first question is, how are you going to fill our concerts? Um, because they had a before I got there, they had a concert series of about you know six seven programs a year, evening programs, um, half of which with orchestra. So these are you know you can already start adding up the dollars in terms of how much these things cost. And other than Messiah, they would get dozens of people to show up, which is, you know, here's a world-class choir, a world-class orchestra. They had great conductors. You know, Jane Glover was there, Andrew Parrott was there, and empty halls. And so the first thing that went in my mind is, well, you know, when I lived in New York as a kid, wild horses wouldn't get me south of Canal Street on an evening. You know, it just wouldn't happen. <laughs> so, which is actually why we created the whole concept of Bach at One, because um, because of the way the, you know, this is a little more information than your listeners want, but because of the union regulations, it's possible to do, um, budget-wise, eight of those for the same cost of one concert, all right? Mm-hmm. So, and I walked through St. Paul's Chapel at noon, and I thought, well, gosh, we put up a tent, and we're going to have an instant audience, which is exactly what happened. So we we did Bach at one um and we're sort of getting an eight-to-one um, product quotient ratio there and packed audiences without really doing any marketing whatsoever. So that's a win-win-win. You know, There's no way to look at that as anything other than an, uh, an incredible success. But still, um, what do we do about the fact that the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, is not going to come to a noontime liturgical service that has a Bach cantata in it and, and review it? So that's not going to help the longevity and the long-term growth of the various ensembles of Trinity. So I suggested, why don't, we, um, why don't we try to bring the music to where the people are, rather than spend $100,000 in marketing to get people to go where they don't want to, let's go bring our operation up to Lincoln Center. And, you know, really to break even with, uh, with an added performance of Messiah, you really only need like 50, 60 percent house, which for Messiah, if you can't sell that, then you shouldn't do it, <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if you can't sell out Trinity Choir doing Messiah at Lincoln Center during Christmas time, um, when the New York Times says it's the best Messiah in the world, so that was sort of the obvious thinking behind all of it. And you know, everybody—I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot to see the logic of that. So um, everyone supported it, and now we're gonna we'll see how it goes. Now, are the soloists for the performance drawn from the Trinity Choir, or are you all engaging uh, other soloists? No, they're all drawn from the choir. We have um, a choir of solo quality musicians, and mm. they they all are soloists. Now, not all are appropriate Messiah soloists, but all are appropriate soloists. So we're really um, honored um and lucky to to be able to have this this wealth of people that are that are able to stand out interpret an aria and then go back in and be on some really smart ensemble musicians it's just incredible yeah i was honored uh to actually to come to Bach at one and and see the choir at work and and speaking of solo not to to point people out, but I I must always say something about Jonathan Woody because he's from the Washington, D.C. area, so when I saw him in New York, and then he came to tell me that, you know, he went to DeMatha High School, and I was just like, oh, wow, and it's such a wonderful voice, and then he went to McGill, I saw all those connections coming together, so yes, you all definitely have some uh, quality voices there. Um, Absolutely. 
I wanted to go a little bit back uh, since talking about hearing the Trinity Choir. Also, I wanted to commend you all on the wonderful series that you all did called Remember to Love During 9-11. I thought that was Mm -hmm. absolutely wonderful. Could you maybe talk about the genesis of that project, how that came about to invite the different choirs for that? Absolutely. Um, Let's see. Um, The original concept, again, this... we have to remember that I am new to the position and that I inherited a lot of programming and a lot of all this. So one of the things I inherited when I got there was um, the concept of doing Britain's War Requiem. Um, and they had they had sort of created a budget that would make that piece work. And and then, of course, you know, I said, well, that's nice, but, you know, the Trinity Choir is not exactly big enough to do the Britain War Requiem. <laughs> so... Um, so then I, I, I said, why don't we build on that and invite choruses from the geographically affected regions, Boston, Washington, and another group in, in New York, and um, rural Pennsylvania. And everyone's like, oh, great. So we got that all excited and talked, started planning for that for about six months, trying to figure out how to do Britain's War Requiem with all of those groups and you know we were talking about it should be great performances, PPS, et cetera, et cetera. But the budget to do that well went into the millions because we would have had to have built something outside. We would have had to have contingency plans, the orchestra, the the hotels for everyone staying there. So it just got kind of ridiculous. So in other words, in in an attempt to keep it more um, modest. Um, I just thought, well, let's just change that whole concept. We'll do a program together in the evening and then let all these individual groups do performances during the day. So it actually turned into a better program because we had to think outside the box and not just do what would be the obvious thing to a big organization. Like the New York Phil would say, okay, War Requiem, Resurrection Symphony, and period, the end. So it turned into a very creative collaboration with all these organizations, just fantastic. And um, the programming was was created in a way that it could be rehearsed on a single day, and thus we wouldn't need 500 people trying to stay in New York for four days for rehearsals and all of that. And and everyone, again, as I say over and over again, everyone checked their egos at the door and just made that yeah. day brilliant. It was just wonderful. It really was, and just my brief interactions uh, with some of the conductors and the choirs, I mean, the people were so wonderful. And I and I have to mention um, the Young People's Chorus of New York under Francisco Nunez because just as soon as after uh, we heard them perform at that program, I see them on TV getting recognized at the White House by um, First Lady Michelle Obama. So that was like, wow, I just heard this choir at Trinity Church. But I also liked how you all used the, if I'm not mistaken, the Durfler Ubi Caritas, how you all used that piece to tie the whole program together. Right. Well, that's a bigger concept. That was a sort of a church-wide slash corporation-wide decision of what what is the statement we wanted people to be talking about the week after the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And the focus we looked at was remember to love. Mm. So that's what... Um, because because there's so you have to remember that the programming changed for us because when um, Bin Laden was killed, 
there's there was a lot of ugliness down in our neck of the woods in our neighborhood and it was just at that time that we were putting up sort of finishing touches of the programming and that really put us all back to square one and i had to call all of our organizations and be like you know what we need to get a focus away from sort of heavy duty requiems heavy duty patriotism um and really look more at this uh, ubi caritas remember to love concept and everyone just got on the bandwagon for instance we were going to do um dirge for two veterans which is an appropriate piece great piece but it really has that war imagery which is also another reason why we got away from the war requiem even though it's a pacifist piece it has the word war in it so we wanted to make sure that there was no suggestion whatsoever that we were doing sort of an American patriotic act or that we were doing anything that had to equate the the remembrance of 9-11 with some kind of war on Islam, because that's what that's the language that was going on in Lower Manhattan at the time. Mm. That That is quite something. But it was remarkable how you all pulled that together, and it was such a, a meaningful program it wasn't just another performance it, it was it, it was a presentation that just spoke of excellence and and it really spoke to the hearts and the minds of the people and what they were going through considering um, the aftermath of 9-11 so thank you all so much for that um i wanted to now steer a little bit and focus a little bit uh on you because most people know that when we interviewed the last time it was more germane to candlelight Christmas concerts and, and we did talk about that today. But as a part of the Maestro series, I want to go a little bit further because in addition to being this wonderful um conductor and organist, you're also a great composer. So talk to me a little bit about um Come My Dark Eyed One. How did you feel about the uh, Washington premiere that just happened uh, with the Washington chorus of your work? Sure. It's it's ironic because these past 18 months have seen more compositional activity for me than any time the rest of my life. I mean, I, that, that weekend that Come My Dark Eyed One was premiered in Washington, I had performances of my music in, in New York and in Boston, you know, so it was, it's... It's kind of amazing, and, and on January 15th, a new um, orchestral disc of my music is coming out on Atma Classique with the Orchestra Metropolitan of Montreal, and uh, my Naxos CD, uh, first volume of complete choral music, came out last year. So it's there's a lot of a lot of music coming out, and I'm getting a lot of positive feedback, um, which you know feels amazing, and. Um, it, you know, when I went into conducting, it was always to support the habit of composition because that's you know, you just composition's not a way to put bread on the table. So, but more and more, I'm um, I'm being guided by my friends, colleagues, loved ones to refocus um, some uh, incredible percentage of my time on that act, just because I think um, what's coming out for me is touching people, and it's. It is, um, it's music that, you know, 20 years ago was seen as, you know, too, um, when I was in, in academic situations, it was seen as being too accessible. Um, and, but then for people who are making the music like this is really hard. So it's, I think my music really follows a trajectory that comes directly from, you know, Leonard Bernstein, the American experience and, has 
you know, music that's easy to listen to and music that's a little more challenging to hear, hear but that it is um, eclectic. And I think that's what makes it, that's one of its qualities that makes it so American. So I'm very happy with where I am as a composer, but part of the challenge, you know, moving forward is to figure out, okay, um, does it make sense for me to be sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet dealing with numbers, or should I be writing, you know, the next piece that's going to actually say something? So that's that's the um, that's kind of what's going through my head. As you compose, do you still um, harken back to the influence of your your late teacher Lucas Foss? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, Lucas. Um, because when you, I spent so many years with Lucas, not only as a teacher, which was, you know, at the end of my doctorate at Boston University, my last sort of three years was with Lucas, but the time after that, which was as a friend and a colleague, and just showing him music and hearing his stories, because this is a guy who knew, you know, who was sitting next to Bartok when his concerto for orchestra was premiered. He knew Stravinsky. He knew Britain. He knew Bernstein. He knew everybody. He was, you know, completely connected in in that whole world. And I'm actually still friends with his son and his widow. Where it's it's still there's this family connection to that that group of people. Um, so I feel like like a young member of of that school of composition. That there I am. Um, you know, if you were to draw. A hundred years from now, sort of a lineage chart. I'm right there, connected to Lucas and and Lenny. It's it's an, and and therefore Barber, Ives, and and all the other ones. So it's it's kind of a, an a awesome feeling. Wow. My first introduction, I will be honest, I, I wasn't really familiar uh, with the music of Lucas Fox until my mentor uh, in high school gave me a disc called With Heart and Voice, and then with the recording of the Trinity Choir conducted by Brian Jones. And on that disc is an anthem called "Behold, I Build a House," and I was just was so struck by that that uh, that piece. So, and then to me, you is like wow. And then to hear this influence in your music is like Jesus. Like you're right; it's like a direct line to Lucas. No, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Just as we we wind down and and come to the interview, the interview, I just want to thank you so much for sharing um, of your time and for the listeners. Uh, could you just give a snapshot of what? Uh, coming up with the Washington Court beyond the holidays as far as the season. No, absolutely. In March, we do a collaboration with the National Symphony Orchestra. We do Dvorak Stabat Mater. In May, we're doing a um, a Wagner program, kind of the essential Wagner. It's a collaboration with the Wagner Society. The main feature there, I mean, we'll do things like the Ride of the Valkyries, of course, and the Overture to Meistersinger, but the main meet is going to be the finale of Meistersinger, um, we'll use some of those great Wagnerian singers that Evelyn Lear has been training. Um, and then we have a, a fantastic um, world premiere of a piece called Oceanic Verses, which is multimedia. There's video, there's music, there's movement. And that's also at the Kennedy Center. That's um, The composer is Paola Prestini, and she's a real up-and-comer. I was just at a fundraiser for her in New York last week, and of all people, Philip Glass opened the show, you know, playing a little oh, piece wow. to support her. So that's a major, major coup for us, and that's a piece that's going to continue going up to the River to River Festival in New York and onto the Barbican um, in the 2013 season. So all good things, and then many, many other things with the Washington Course that are not publicly uh, available yet, but 
summer activities. I'll leave it at that. Oh, okay, so I'm not gonna be a bad press person trying to draw it out of you. I'll just <laughs> there we go. And and now, could I just ask, just for my own curiosity, maybe for the listeners as well, if people want to listen to this interview on demand, is that possible? Yes. Yeah, so once we finish, it should be in a few seconds. You just go to BlogTalkRadio.com, and then the interview will be populated. It'll be immediately uh, available to be listened to. Fantastic. Okay. Again, listeners, we've been listening to conductor Julian Watner, who is the music director of the Washington Chorus. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. And just before you go, I do want to remind everybody, um, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, especially to join the Washington Chorus for a candlelight Christmas uh, at the Kennedy Center and also at the Music at Strathmore. I will post those um, exact dates, as Mr. Watner mentioned, um, on the blog so you can follow them. But, Julian, thank you so much for joining the broadcast today. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great day. Listeners, you've been listening to the Maestro Series, the first anniversary of the African-American voice and classical music. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice and classical music. We just listened to music director Julian Watner, who was the inaugural interview of the show. Thank you so much, and I hope that you all have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We will close the show with Joy to the World, arranged by Julian Watner. And just as we close, I will encourage you to get uh, the Washington Chorus CD called Christmas with the Washington Chorus, and I will post that information shortly also. Again, I invite you to follow me on Facebook at Patrick D. McCoy, the African American Voice in Classical Music. I also encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy, and I also encourage you to become a subscriber to my column, DC Performing Arts Examiner. Just go to examiner.com and type in DC Performing Arts Examiner, and there you will find my many reviews of the Washington Course. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music. I do wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs>